Hey everyone, we've got a special episode for you today. We're super lucky to be joined by Sean King from the podcast Your Mac Life. Now to give you a little background about Sean, he started podcasting about Apple nearly 25 years ago before the word podcast was even a thing. Having just crossed episode 1200 of Your Mac Life, we get together with Sean. Uh, we chat about how he got started with podcasting, how he feels Apple has changed over the last 25 years, where he sees the iPad going, and we even discuss some of his interactions with Steve Jobs. You can find Sean's podcast at yourmaclifeshow.com, but without further ado, here's episode 105 with Sean King. Well, I guess we should probably start by um, some congratulations. Episode 1200, that's, um, that's quite an achievement. I've, I've got to take my hat off to you. That's it? That's that's how you're going to introduce me in, on your on your <laughs> podcast? Come on, you can do better than that. Jeez. I was expecting professional operation here. And look what you found. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I got up early for this? <laughs> Yeah, I um, it, it, it's a rough guesstimate, according to a uh, a rougher guesstimate of when I actually started the show. Uh, I tell, it's funny. I I've never really cared about this kind of stuff, uh, so I didn't actually know the date I started my very 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 first podcast. And it wasn't until a friend pointed out that I had been interviewed by the one of the local papers here in Vancouver, Canada, that they had the date on it. So now I know it was March nineteenth, nineteen ninety four. And just sort of extrapolating from then, I'm assuming I'm somewhere around the 1200 range, probably a little more, maybe a little less. There's been, for the first few years, it was every single Wednesday bang on. And then life got in the way and sickness and moving and travel and that kind of stuff. But And then there's the, the shows I did during Macworld Expos and uh, Tokyo Expos that I may have done four or five in a week. So I'm just sort of guessing at it. But I think 1,200 is probably pretty close. Wow. I mean, I, I kind of thought you were having a joke when I first <laughs> I first, <laughs> when I first discovered. I think I came across your show probably August or September last year. Yeah. Um, and when yeah. I saw the episode number, I thought, well, clearly you've just like started at 1,000 or something as a joke and carried on. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I've had I've had many people question that, and 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 most of them don't know that I've been doing this for almost twenty five years now. Again, March nineteenth will be the twenty fifth year of me podcasting, and they just assume that I'm like them and I started six months ago, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, I'm a grizzled old veteran. Actually, the, the the funniest thing is I started doing air quotes podcast before podcasting was even a word. Something I wanted to to ask you about actually, Sean. I mean, what did it even look like back then? <laughs> it was, it, you know what? Unfortunately, not much different than now. You know, I haven't gotten any better at this after 25 years. <laughs> we, when we started off, we started off using uh, real audio from uh, real networks, and at that time, real audio allowed you to do a free stream. I think up to 20 concurrent listeners. And so it started off with just me wanting to get my voice out there. I was a consultant here in Vancouver, and I thought it'd be kind of interesting. People have always said I've got a, a good voice. I've always said I've got a good face for radio. <laughs> I had to wait for that joke, guys. Come on, keep up. You know? It was a Skype lag. It was a Skype lag. <laughs> exactly. That's yeah. right. It's Skype lag. And so I, what, I, what I was doing, the idea was I was going to record my voice and send this off on this new internet thing to my consultant clients. I was saying the same things to every client once a week. So I thought, well, this would get kind of different. <clears throat> and then someone suggested that, well, you should put this on the internet for other people to listen to it. Thought, well, who wants to listen to me? That's just stupid. 
So we started it that way, and then we realized that there were people who didn't want to listen to it. So we went looking for some way to do it live. I've always wanted to do live. I've never done um, a recorded podcast. Some of them have been pre-recorded, but for the most part, I've always done a live show. And so it was a real audio. I think it was called Real Stream at the time. I'm not 100% sure of what it was. And people could tune in to the show and listen to live. In the first, you know, year there's maybe one or two people there's some lonely guy in his basement in Birmingham Alabama you know it was no, it was no big deal um but after this, about, did, sorry this is, this is all through real real player yeah this is through real player exactly real player at the time QuickTime couldn't do real live streaming yeah so we had we had to we wanted to do a live show you didn't have a choice you had to use the the real audio stuff and I actually had um, folks at Apple, once I became a little more well-known, um, the head of the QuickTime team at Apple said, you know, why don't you use QuickTime to do this? I said, I'd love to, dude, but you don't make a service. You don't make it possible for me to do this in a live way. And so that's how we got started. We got started doing everything in the, in real audio and then uh, uploading it to the the Internet, to a, to a server, obviously, and then sending out that link to the people who wanted to listen to it. And then came along XML and RSS, and that made it much more automated. The folks could just get a message via the, either email or the web browser to, hey, there's a new show up there. And that's where the automation aspect of it, that's where the original idea of uh, XML w was, or RSS was, was the yeah. idea that you, rather than you having to go find the thing, it would come to you. And that was a, a really interesting breakthrough and allowed a lot more, allowed our reach to, to, to grow to almost 10 or 12 people. <laughs> so what, was it just called internet radio or like, cause this is obviously pre the word podcast. What, what was it known as? It was, yeah, most of the time you were describing it as internet radio. I always described it as, um, the same kind of radio show that you were listening to at drive time when you were going to work. That's what we were trying to do. We were trying to be, first and foremost, my idea has always been, I want to be entertaining. I want people to enjoy listening to me. Secondly, you wanted it to be informative. And then we started to add elements of traditional radio along with that. So we had contests and we had call-in and we did emails. And we tried to, we tried to include all the aspects of traditional radio that were fun, along with the aspects of the internet that we could use. The idea of getting email live on the show was really kind of cool. Then we, <laughs> then, we, then we did chat rooms. We've been doing IRC chat rooms from the very beginning, so folks could sit and have a conversation with us directly. So whatever we could find that was good from the internet and from traditional radio, we, we tried to merge into the show. So yeah, you often described it to others as just imagine it being radio on the internet. Wow. So when you when you sat down to record episode one, did you ever did you ever think you'd be here at twelve hundred? Oh God, no! I was hoping to get a real job. <laughs> <laughs> no, like I said, I, I Risen was doing it because I was a consultant. I was a Macintosh consultant here in Vancouver, and I thought this is just a way for me to be able to tell my clients this information. And then we, I got an email from someone in in um, in uh, Manchester, England. Ironically enough, and he said, "Have you thought about this?" It asking a question, something I'd said on one of the previous episodes. And I thought, "How the hell did you find out about it?" I already sent this out to my customers and i found out that he was a friend of one of my clients and my client said hey listen to this guy and he in manchester england listened to the show and that's when it sort of blew our minds to think that hey we can get everyone on the internet around the world listen to us the downside of traditional radio is that it's 
at that time anyway, it was limited to whatever the broadcast area of that station was, whatever wattage they could pump out, whatever kilometers from their base they could pump out. But the yeah. Internet, you could reach everybody. And that was really cool, a cool idea that our little show here in Vancouver, Canada, could be heard by not only people throughout Vancouver, but throughout Canada, throughout the United States, throughout Europe, Asia. And when we started to get that sort of reach, even if it was just one or two people, one guy in Germany, one guy in Japan, it really, really blew our minds the thought that we can communicate around the world. And that's when, we, that's when I thought, anyway, this could become a real thing, is not only in the general sense that others would be doing this, but also in the sense that, hey, maybe I can make a living doing this. Huh, that's amazing. See, I kind of feel a little bit silly that I've only recently discovered you. I mean, given that I've been listening to podcasts, not forever, but since about 2013. And yeah, I, I don't know, I, I guess maybe I was thinking about it on my drive home earlier. And yeah, maybe I've kind of just got myself to blame there because I think it's easy to put the blinkers on and keep listening to the same things from the same places. And I think probably sort of mid, yeah, the middle of last year, I started to kind of feel a little bit like I wanted to hear something new. Yeah, I think it came just at the right time. It was, it was by complete chance that I found out about you. I think I was watching something on something else Mac related on YouTube, and then one of your videos came up as the uh, suggested. Mm, yeah, um, but no, it came, it came just at the right time. Well, it, it's an interesting uh, issue because you know <clears throat> back in the day there was just me, and then there was <clears throat> me and one other guy. So if you wanted to listen to anything Apple related, you had to listen to us that we, we were the only choice we had a much broader reach much greater um listenership but as time moved on other people found out how easy this is i mean you two yabos from the commonwealth are also doing it too it's not like it's, it's not like it's hard to do you know <laughs> for for better or worse anybody can do a podcast sometimes it's worse sometimes it's better and yeah. so the, the the whole market sort of uh uh, dilutes and it gets harder to find other people. The other part of the problem is that the podcast, the Macintosh community, and this is one of the reasons why you haven't heard of me probably, is that it's very incestuous. The Macintosh media community, the the guys who are there, the generally now middle aged white guys who are doing all these other shows that you know about, <clears throat> are only interview each other. You know, they, 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 it's it's the circle jerk of the Internet. These guys only ever talk to each other. And so they only talk about each other to each other. So there's no other voices get coming in. Now, I'm the old guy. I'm not saying that I, I'm a new young buck that I should be on Daring Fireball's podcast or Jason Snell's podcast. I've been around long before them. All those guys, their first podcast was mine. <laughs> the very first time John Gruber was ever interviewed was on my podcast. The first time Jason Snell was ever interviewed was on my podcast. All those guys, because I was first and only for the longest period of time, they started off on my show. The problem is, if you've listened to my show for any length of time, you know that I have a large, large mouth. I'm really obnoxious for a Canadian. It's very unusual how obnoxious <laughs> I am being Canadian. <laughs> you know, I, I completely blow away the stereotype of the nice Canadian. I'm a jerk much of the time. And problem, the problem is I'm a jerk to them much of the time. <laughs> I've said some, in this is in, in my defense, this is, I think, justified criticism of Gruber, of Snell, of Morin, of all those guys that do these podcasts. And a lot of them don't like being criticized. So therefore, I'm not going to, they're, they're thinking I'm not going to have Sean on my show because he was mean to me six years ago and I'm not going to do it anymore. And so that's why uh, the, the, the circle jerk continues because those guys only interview each other and don't interview, for example, you guys or, 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 or the old guys like, like myself. 
And the other problem is that I've gotten out of the, um, for the most part, the interview business, the interview end of things. Uh, I used to do, back in the day, I would do six interviews a show. The show was originally two and a half hours on wow. Wednesday evenings. And I would do six interviews. So I had to find six people to interview each each week. And so that got, after well, literally 10, 15 years, for me, it got boring interviewing the same guys over and over again. Interviewing Snell over and over again. Interviewing Gruber. Interviewing... Um, uh, the Macalope, you know, those kind of guys, it just, uh, you're saying the same things. I'm not seeing anything different out of you, out of you. I stopped interviewing Apple, uh, 10 years ago because Apple wasn't saying anything of any interest at all that I couldn't get from their, their press releases. So because I don't interview them, maybe they're not interviewing me. That might be the reason why. And discovery is a big problem, uh, whether it be the iTunes store, whether it be on the internet in general, discovering new things, whether it be software or podcasts or websites is a lot harder you need people to talk about you in some way to get discovered for a lot of people yeah very much it's something that we've experienced uh just starting this podcast out over the last couple of years has been well okay how are people actually coming to us how are people finding us and i think overall it's really just been a case of um of word of mouth of kind of putting stuff yep. across on twitter you know and that that side of things uh i i yeah, I don't think we would have the listeners that we've got today if it wasn't for actually just getting word out on Twitter. Yeah, uh, it's really hard, and, and it's a shame. It shouldn't be. I tried many years ago. Uh, once I saw a bunch of other podcasts, Macintosh Apple focused podcasts, I thought, would it be a wouldn't it be a great idea to do a serious network of podcasters? And what you would do, you just go to this network and. Just like Sirius, there'd be a list of shows to watch, and you could listen to them as you would any other. And you would band together as a group of fellow podcasters uh, focused on Apple, focused on Macintosh. <clears throat> you would sell advertising based on that amalgamation of all these other podcasts. I actually had talks with the folks at uh, Sirius during one CES, and that this was the time 10 years ago when they were really desperate for content. They thought that would be a brilliant idea because it wouldn't cost them anything. All they would do is aggregate the podcast that we're already doing and just insert ads in them. It wouldn't have been any big deal. So yeah. I thought, okay, this is fantastic. Let's go. And I talked to all those podcasters, and nobody wanted to work with each other in order to <laughs> increase the size of the pie. Everybody wanted their own mini tart as opposed to building a giant pumpkin pie, if you understand my yeah. really shitty analogy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but th because they're so insular and so incestuous that, no, I'm not going to work with that guy because he said a bad thing about me five years ago. So I'm going to stay in my own little end of the, the internet and with my X numbers of thousands of listeners instead of thinking, yeah, let's grow this thing and have a whole network of podcasts. It's a shame because I think there, I think that's still a viable possibility, especially with advertising uh, having dropped off so much. And, and the idea that, we're, that, that they, I don't do advertising, but they all do the same damn Squarespace and all of our com ads. Maybe we could open that up to other advertisers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Every other podcast has the same advertiser on and, and that becomes quite noticeable quite quickly, I think. Yeah, it really does. If you listen to more than one or two podcasts a week, you, you hear that same thing. And I hate those ads. I hate them. 
I hate the idea that the host is doing them. I hate that they're not separate from the show. I hate that they sound the exact same. It just, and, and this is something else that's gotten me in trouble too with, with these guys, is it makes me feel just a little bit, depending on who the person is, that you've, you've sold a bit of your integrity. Now, I have no problem with me doing advertising. I've, I've voiced many ads. Again, I've been told I have a, I have a pleasant-sounding voice. But I don't want that ad to be in the middle of the interview I'm having with you. Where, hang on a second, I have to say nice things about Squarespace. And that just, to me, sounds awful. I want it to be a completely separate ad, separate sound, just like on TV and radio. Be professional about this, guys, and, and make those separate segments of of your show. I don't know. That's just a personal thing for me. I just find that makes me a, a little queasy that the host is doing an ad in the middle of the show, the beginning of the show, wh- wherever it is. And again, because they're repetitive, they're the exact same ads over and over again. Plus I know when I was doing those ads, when I was working for another podcaster uh, hosting his show. Um, he told me, you know, at this point is where you do your Squarespace read. And I said, well, I've never used Squarespace. I'll just fake it. I'm sorry. What? Yeah, just just fake it. Just just make it up. I said, what do you mean, make it up? <laughs> and that made me think, are other podcasters doing this? <laughs> you, know? you sort of if think, well, guy, yeah, they must be. Exactly. If this guy is telling me to fake a Squarespace ad, then maybe he's telling other people to do it. Because I've never used Squarespace. I've been I've been a, a Drupal guy and a WordPress guy. And that's I, not, nothing against Squarespace. I have no problem with Squarespace. But I've just never used it. And all those ads you hear are all, this is how I use Squarespace. I like da Maybe they don't, and that mm. always makes me a little a little suspicious. It's difficult, isn't it? Because there's an implied endorsement, isn't there? Even if it's the presenter just doing reading from a script, there is still that almost an implied endorsement, even if it isn't necessarily there. Exactly. That's the problem I have. Is that that's a good way of putting it? I wish I was smart enough to say it that way. That implied endorsement. If it's a separate advertisement with separate music and separate sound, it can be the same guy, but that separateness of it takes away the implication of the endorsement and and it's fine if you endorse the product but you better actually endorse it and i just don't like the idea of the host doing those endorsements in such an obvious uh close way to the interviews that that they're doing again personal opinion i'm not saying that it's right for everybody it's just the way i feel about it yeah i feel feel very similar and i think um actually when these interviews when these um advertisements sort of cut in it reminds me of a little. Do you remember a film called Wayne's World? Yes, of course. Yeah. So when he has the uh, the arcade owner onto the show, and and they've got him in the in the studio, everything's really forced, and he sort of sits there. You know, I'm the guy who sort of feels like Wayne in that situation where he's making yeah. sort of silly cue cards up to show the guy up. You know, I sort of feel like it's kind of awkward and yeah, doesn't really fit. Yeah. And it's a shame. Like I said, I think there's still enough. Uh, podcasters out there, even Apple or Macintosh focused, or, or, or as you guys are developer fo- focused, if we could all just band together, we could put aside our petty little differences with each other and realize that we all got together as a as a large aggregate network. We wouldn't lose any audience. We would gain audience because there'd be bleed over from your show to mine, and mine to yours, and et cetera, et cetera. And we could then go to real air quotes real advertisers and get real money i mean i'd love to be able to advertise for coca-cola or ford you know all the other people that we normally hear about and each other um but the, if these guys won't work with you you can't force them to it's an interesting dynamic and i guess it's one that you've sort of seen develop you know being in the industry since the start in that, that sort of way and i guess i kind of wonder like well um 
how long has advertising sort of been part of the uh, part of the podcast industry? When did it sort of first come in, and how's that developed? You know, because for me, it's kind of like that's a good question. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I, I mean, I've been listening to podcasts regularly. I think probably maybe, and Dave said about twenty thirteen. I'm probably a similar sort of time. Like I remember kind of using podcasts when I started took up running. Um, I don't run as often as I used to now, but uh, 2012 sort of time and, and, and podcasts are really good for that. You know, it kind of turned a boring run into something that felt useful. I could learn something or find out more sure. about a new yeah. topic. Yeah. And, and uh, funnily enough, it was all around iOS development at the time because I was just starting mm. out on it. Uh, but by that time, it must have been a done deal because every podcast had adverts at, at some point or another, e- even then. So, yeah, I wonder what the the timing is, if you like. If you sort of think back to whenever you were speaking um, with, with the networks and, and trying to sort of think about something bigger and and then that, that sort of thing didn't really take off, um, there must have been another point a few years later or whatever when some of these, these companies decided, you know what, we, we can actually do something here. And I guess it is, it's a smaller group of companies, right? Because you hear the same names all the time. Yeah. Uh, And equally, I guess um, the companies that you see are also biased to the, uh, the, the the type of podcast as well. So I know listening to other, other podcasts, um, you get things on fitness or whatever, and you hear from the same vitamin supplements uh, and those sort of people. So, but yeah, I wonder when the, um, when the market kind of tipped in a few places sort of went, Hey, we can, we can get these guys and and the current form of podcast advertising started. Well, it started off for me when I guess after a couple of years, uh, someone suggested by email, Hey, you should give away prizes on your show. And I thought, I'm not buying stuff and sending it to you. That's just stupid. I'm not, I'm not wasting my money on you. And they said, no, no, no. You can contact companies, and they will send you stuff that you can use as prizes. And I was like, oh, bullshit. They wouldn't do that. And they said, yeah, they would. So they gave me a contact to someone at Adobe. So I wrote this email to Adobe. Hi, Adobe. I'm Shaw, and I do this thing called a broadcast internet radio show. I have no idea what I'm, I have no but just a clarification. I have zero background in anything. <laughs> nothing. I'm, I'm not a traditional radio guy. I'm not a traditional voice guy. I'm not a traditional uh, a marketing guy. Sales. Nothing. I have no interest or experience in that stuff. So I'm making all this stuff up as I go along. So I sent this email off to Adobe saying, you know, we want to we want to mention you guys on our show. Could you send us some stuff? Two weeks later, this freaking gigantic box shows up at, at at the office, and it's full of Adobe stuff. They've got hats and T-shirts and mugs and cups, and it was like a, a treasure trove of, of Adobe-branded products. And we were like, yay, we got stuff to give away. And then we went, shit, now we got to put this stuff in the mail. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> This is going to cost us a fortune. <laughs> We can't afford this. <laughs> we can't send this hat to some guy in New York. It'll cost you twenty dollars. <laughs> yeah. So then, someone else suggested, well, you could have these companies sponsor your podcast, and they will pay you to to do this. And I was like, oh, okay, all right. So then we started breaking the show up into segments, and the segments were sponsored by so and so, 
And it was basically, you know, this company really likes us. This this segment sponsored by Adobe. The new ver the new version of Photoshop One is out. Uh, go get it, kind of thing. And they would give you a hundred bucks, two hundred bucks, whatever it might be. Luckily, I got smart enough um, very quickly and told companies we want to give your products away in the show, but don't send your product to me. You keep it. <laughs> I'll send you the address, and you send it to them. <laughs> very clever of me. Then we got on board with a magazine. Uh, at the time, it was called Mac Home Journal. It's now def uh, d defunct magazine. But they were the major sponsors of the show. Basically, we were doing the podcast for them, and they were paying us to do it. So sponsorship came before advertising, at least, well, in Macintosh podcasting, because seeing as I was the first, it, it started with me. So first of all, sponsorship was the big thing, that your either your entire podcast or your website or segments of your podcast were sponsored by these companies. So companies would sponsor us to go to Macworld Expo. Uh, the first time we did that, we had, I think, five companies that sponsored, paid us to mention them on, on, on the podcast live from Macworld Expo. And that's how that got started. And then I think it was more due to podcasting. And Audible.com was a big deal um, in the beginning of podcasting in the yeah. sense that they were the only ones who were paying you directly to put your podcast on their service. They were the only ones who, was, who were giving you a cut of the Audible.com <clears throat> subscription money. Um, in order to put your podcast on there. And for the longest time, I did that. Uh, there was only two podcasts. On Audible. This is how old I am. There was only two podcasts <laughs> on Audible.com that were paid podcasts. It was me and Ricky Gervais. <laughs> the only two, which is kind of cool. You know? Do you remember what and sort of timing this was? Like, what, what, when about This would have been at? 20... 2000 and it would have been 2002 because in 2000, yeah, 2002, I moved from Vancouver, Canada to Nashville, Tennessee. And that's when things really took off from an advertising podcasting point of view um, was just the access to the American market. It was very funny. I don't know if you guys have dealt with this, but and no offense to our um, American listeners out there, American companies can be very provincial when it comes to this kind of stuff. I was told on many occasions that, oh, no, we don't uh, we don't support that our product there in Canada. Um, so we're not going to advertise in your show. We're not going to give you product to give away. And I was like, what do you mean? Doesn't it, doesn't it work in Canada? <laughs> Is it too cold here? What, what the hell? But it, they're very centered on America. And understandably so. It's a, it's the largest market in the world. So moving to the States really, really jump-started a lot of this, um, this aspect of the show for me. And I was learning a lot more too. So in the ensuing seven years, I'd had People come on board that new market, new marketing, new sales, new advertising. So I was a little more confident in going out, especially at a Macworld Expo, because that was the easiest place to talk to folks in aggregate. So I could go up to a booth and say, hey, you know, where's your marketing VP? Let's talk about advertising on this new thing called podcasting. So that was the time frame of 2002. That still feels really, really quite a while ago now in terms <laughs> of, of where podcasting is today. I, I mean, like, where was the iPod at that point in time? That's, uh... Yeah, the iPod, that would have been the same year, I'm trying to remember, I think 2001, 2002, because I remember um, getting the invite from Apple. Uh, the, 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 the next biggest thing from, from a podcasting point of view was Apple uh, in qu using QuickTime 4. That was the first version that you could do a live stream, and that, I think, really helped 
a lot of podcasters, a lot of folks, a lot of creatives, as we, as we know, use the Macintosh, and, and it was a whole lot easier. Uh, I had to have a Unix guy, my, my co-host at that time, when the show first started in 94, up until I moved to Nashville, was a Unix guy, because real audio was just all Unix-based, and I could not figure it out. It was not drag-and-drop. It was not point-and-click. It was not anything. It was QuickTime 4 that made things a whole lot easier for the average person to start their own podcast. You didn't have to be a geek or a nerd to figure out the back end of things. QuickTime 4 really helped out a lot with that. So that was around the time frame of 2002. So you mentioned you were a Macintosh consultant in Vancouver, right? Yes. So what Yes. What got you into Apple in the first place? Well, as we all know, uh, uh, consultant is Latin for unemployed. <laughs> um, so it, it, <laughs> frequently, or at least underemployed. I actually started off in uh, in college as a political science major. My my goal was to study, believe it or not, East European and Russian studies was where I was headed career-wise. And then ran out of money in the third year of college. And a friend said... Um, you know, you need a job, you can come work for our engineering firm. Do you know anything about computers? And I was like, well, I use these because I came from a poor background. I never had computers when I was a kid growing up. I ain't that old, but we were that poor that I, my first, I touched my first computer in college. Um, and it was an old Mac SE, SE 30. And I would type my term papers on it. But this was, this computer thing is really cool. I can, I was always typing using a, a electric typewriter. So this guy said, what do you know about computers? And I said, well, you know, I use a Mac. He said, good enough. Just come on in for the interview, and we'll, we'll get you interviewed for the show or for the, uh, the job. I sit down on Friday. The interviewer says, um, so do you know how to use Photoshop? Oh, yeah. Do you know how to use uh, Freehand, Macromedia Freehand? And that's how old I am. It was called free, Macromedia Freehand. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's not a problem. All right. Well, you can start on Monday. Thanks very much. Great. I knew nothing about Photoshop. I knew nothing about Freehand. <laughs> I knew nothing about anything. But I needed the freaking job. <laughs> so luckily, the statute of limitations has expired on this particular story. I went to my local bookstore and stole the books I needed. I had no money to buy these books. I literally stuffed them. I, 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 the Beginner's Guide to Photoshop stuffed it in my jacket. The Beginner's Guide to Macromedia's Freehand stuffed it in my jacket. And do, Penguin walked my way out of the store hoping I wouldn't get freaking arrested. To go to your job on the Monday. <laughs> That's exactly. I, I'm glad to be working with the company. I have bail money now. Yeah. So all day, all day Sunday, all day Saturday, I read the Photoshop book over and over and over and over again. All day Sunday, I read the freehand book over and over and over again. I get into work on um, Monday morning, and they say, okay, here's your first project. I'm like, okay, my brain is leaking full of information. You know, I had no clue what I was doing. So at the end of the day, I said, would you guys mind if I took this computer home so I could work some more? I'm, I'm new and still getting used to things. They said, yeah, no problem. Back in the day, the Mac SE 30 had that cute little handle on it. So I picked this little computer up and, and took it on the bus with me. Got home and just started banging away. At, uh, they wanted me to do this thing, this graphic. And I looked it up in the, in the freehand, or maybe it was an Illustrator, one of the two, Illustrator book or the Photoshop book, and worked till midnight, 2 o'clock in the morning, and got back in the bus, got back to work, and the job was finished in the morning. That's very good work. Thank you very much. I say bleary-eyed from sleep. <laughs> I went on like this for... Months, months and months and months, didn't get caught. And then one time, someone said, hey, Sean, how do you do this in Photoshop? And I was like, oh, that's pretty easy. You just do this, this. Oh, thank you. And I learned at that moment that I had a facility, a skill for 
learning complicated things and explaining it in English to others. And that has been my life's work since, is that I have this really weird, useless superpower of being able to read technical stuff and, and watch and understand technical things and then distill it in my brain and then turn around and explain it to other people. So it turned out eventually, after about six months, I became the Photoshop and Illustrator instructor for this company. I was the one teaching all the new people how to do these things. I would put on weekly seminars and how to do Bezier curves and all this kind of stuff and how to do layers in Photoshop. It was, it was really cool. I loved doing it. I loved the teaching aspect, the, 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 the dissemination of knowledge aspect of it was a lot of fun for me. And when I got fired from that job for having a big mouth, <laughs> as, I, as I have from every job I've ever had, <laughs> I've literally been fired from every real job I've ever had in my life because I have a big mouth. Because I will, not, I will not keep quiet. If I see something that's wrong, I will say it. And unfortunately, you often say it to the boss. And he says, you have to leave now and security will escort you out. I've been escorted out of buildings by security on 10 different occasions. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not necessarily proud of that, but... <laughs> but was each yeah, one it, of those 10 as an employee? Yes. Oh, yes. That's or as an, a former employee, employee yes. at that point? No, no. Yeah, at former... Well, the, the best one was the company that... Um, uh, I think maybe it happens more now, but companies should always at least give basic IT security knowledge to the security guard. Because the security guard came to me and said, I'm here to escort you out of the building. And I said, okay, um, do you mind if I clean up my computer, get rid of some personal stuff? And the security guy said, yeah, no problem. I deleted everything off the server. (laughs) (laughs) I formatted the server remotely. (laughs) As I'm walking out the door, I can hear the computers going down. (laughs) As they lost all their data. (laughs) Because I was their IT guy. Oh, well. Don't fire IT guy, guys. At least have a backup before you fire IT guy. Yep. So that got me out on the street again. And I realized, like, you know, I can't keep getting these these jobs where I keep getting fired. So what about a job where you're your own boss? And that's where I got the idea of uh, doing this because this was in the early, early days of the Internet. This is 92, 93. You could get on the Internet, but it wasn't really easy. You had to do a bunch of – jump through a bunch of hoops – yeah. And so I basically promoted myself as the guy who can get you on the internet. I, I would set up your TCP IP network. Oh my God. I haven't said those words in 25 years. I would get you on your email and I would set things up and I would you know do all that stuff for you. And ta-da, your computer's on the internet. The problem is in those days as a Macintosh consultant, that once I got you on the internet, you never called me back because Macs then and now were so easy to use for the average person. They didn't need ongoing support. You didn't no. need to come in once a week for virus protection or to hook up a printer or, you know, I got a new mouse, where are the drivers kind of stuff. You know, <laughs> it was a one-time thing. So I was a starving Mac consultant. That's, there's no doubt about that. It was a, it was a hard, hard gig. It Just Works was, was keeping you out of a job. It really was. <laughs> <laughs> Ironically, it really was. And, and some people said, well, why don't you become a, a PC consultant? I was like, yeah, no, I don't want to work that hard. <laughs> you know, <laughs> those guys work their ass off, man. I have no interest in working that hard. <laughs> so, so there you've been ever since, and you've not fired yourself yet. There, there, I, it, it's been close a couple of times, I'll tell you that right now. There have been times where I've just quite literally wanted to give up because this is – Doing this on my own has been very, very hard for a lot of years. Uh, Again, I'm not a marketing guy. I'm not an ad guy. I'm not a sales guy. My idea of selling you an ad is you want to buy an ad? No, screw you. 
You know, that's, <laughs> just, I've got no tact whatsoever. I'm completely, utterly tactless. And plus, there's also a part of me that says the host of the show shouldn't be shilling for advertising. There's something a little dirty about that that I'm really not, not all that crazy about. So I, I always wanted to have someone else be the ad person. And at one point uh, in the mid early 2000s, I did have that. And we were making money hand over fist because we had real marketing people, we had real ad sales guys. And it was great. And it showed me what the show could be. And I could step back and not have to worry about that end of things. But, yeah, there's been several times when it just, you know, this is just too hard because I can't get the word out about me and about the show through advertising to other podcasts because other podcasts don't advertise other podcasts. We, we don't buy ads on each other's podcasts. And, hey, you're listening to this show. Listen to this show, too. We just, we just don't do that. And then trying to get advertisers that I felt comfortable with. Um, I was, you know, because I've been around a long time, I was one of the people that Squarespace first approached uh, back when they were starting. And I was like, yeah, no, I don't want to do it that way. I, 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 I'll be happy to do an ad for you guys where I, you know, you send me a script and I'll read the ad, just like a traditional ad that would go someplace in the show. But I'm not going to do this ad read, this five-minute ad read that you guys want me to do. It's A, it's going to be boring for the audience, it's going to be boring for me, and it just didn't sound... Ironically enough, it didn't sound authentic to me to do that. Yeah. I'd rather do the traditional one-minute ad. The audience knows that this is an ad. It sounds like an ad. It looks like an ad. It feels like an ad, as opposed to what the, the Squarespace and Audible.coms want us to do things. And other, obviously, other companies, too. I'm not just picking on Squarespace. So the, that's the other part of the problem is that I just don't want to be involved in the the ad market the way it is right now for podcasts. But I don't have the ability to reach out to Coca-Cola or to Ford or other companies to do advertising. And, and the other problem is Apple's never advertising anybody. So they're just screwing all of us, the bastards. <laughs> <laughs> so do you, um, how do you think Apple has, has changed? Cause obviously you've, you've probably seen a lot of kind of like mini life cycles within Apple over the years. Um, I, I feel relatively new to it. I mean, my first Mac was, 2007 that was the white plastic macbook mm. um i'm guessing mm. you've seen a lot more hardware a lot more a lot more periods within apple um that they've gone through um so how do you think they've changed over the, over the years do you see any sort of key differences from like say now in the in the late last 10 years to the 10 years before to the 10 years before that do you how do you think things have changed i I started off, I think, the year before Gil Emilio came on board. I was at that Macworld Expo, that famous, infamous Macworld Expo in 1996, I think it was, right. where Gil Emilio stood on stage for three hours and droned and droned and droned. It was the most painful <laughs> keynote ever in the history of keynotes. He just talked for three hours. I wanted a sniper rifle to kill the man. It was just awful. And at that moment in time, I said to myself, Apple is doomed. Apple is just, there's just, if this is the guy leading the company into the so-called future, this company is screwed. There's no way they can do anything. Those are back in the days of, air quotes, the troubles, as we called it in the Macintosh community. The, the Performance 6400, 6, awful, awful machines that Apple is doing. Apple at that time made a CD player. All right, It was a one-speed CD player. That's how old I am. One-speed had an Apple logo on it. I think it was made by Canon. And Apple made printers, and they made they branded printers. They didn't make this stuff. But they the, the marketing was all over the place. It was an awful, awful company. 
without wanting to derail you too far, um, one of those performers was the machine that was my first Mac way back when. <laughs> <laughs> well, and especially being a Macintosh consultant, it was so confusing. They had 10 different performers, and the only difference might have been like one megabyte, megabyte of RAM. But yeah. it had a different model name, a different SKU. It was awful. And what's one of the reasons why I was doing the podcast was to, or the, the broadcast at the time, was to explain these differences to potential customers. Hey, hey, there's the difference in this one versus this one. And the information about Apple at the time was nothing but doom and gloom. There was nothing but, you know, Sun was going to buy them or they were going to go out of business or, or, or. We were actually live on the air the day that um, Gil Emilio announced that they were buying Next. Because there was always that there was that uh, battle between everyone thought they were going to buy Jean Paul Gasset's B system, and then Next came along. And when Gil Emilio said that Steve Jobs was coming on as an advisor to the company, I thought, "Yep, they're screwed. They're they're done. There's just no way." Because because we all know that Jobs was a complete jerk, and he was going to run the company into the ground. I apologize, Mister Jobs. So that was the era that I started off in. This beginning was all this turmoil, all this uh, lousy products. You knew the core of the company. The, the people that I knew at Apple were good, hardworking employees who literally wanted to do what the marketing department said, change the world. They really, really wanted to do things differently. They didn't want to just be there for the money. And I had faith in those guys. I didn't necessarily have faith in the middle managers or the executive of the company to know what they were doing and know where they were going. But very quickly, Jobs came on board, and even as the advisor, and we knew he wasn't going to be an advisor for very long, he immediately took charge. I think the next keynote, rather than Emilio doing it, Jobs did the keynote. And that was a sign right there that Emilio was out the door, that if if the uh, Macworld Expo keynote is being given by an advisor, then the CEO is, is done. Yeah. And... So they started to, you remember that, uh, I don't know, sorry, I don't know if you remember, but Apple took their product line and got rid of everything, got rid of the Newton, got rid of printers, got rid of CD players, everything except those four products, those four core products. Yep. And you started to think, hey, maybe Apple can survive, not thrive, but survive, because we loved the operating system. We loved our Macintoshes. Apple is, I've always said, Apple as a company is just another corporation, but the Macintosh as a product, the operating system as a product, was a thing we all fell in love with. I loved using my Mac. I still do, every single day. I love using this machine. So I was glad to see that Jobs seemed to at least be trying to make this company survive, even if only long enough for it to be bought by some other company. So those were the times that, that we were working in, uh, trying to be positive, trying to find these nuggets of, of good uh, coming from all this bad news. At one point, Apple had lost a billion dollars in a quarter. Lost a yep. billion dollars in a quarter. They were lucky if they were selling two hundred thousand Macintoshes in a quarter. So it was, you know, it was it was dire. It, it was not good. And then the iPod came along. We thought, okay, they're doing some really cool stuff here, and that started to really give us the the sense that Apple is can see its way through this tunnel. And I'll tell you. It was at the opening of the Apple's first Apple store in New York City um, at the post office. Not the, not the Fifth Avenue big glass cube, but they opened up a, a first one in uh, Soho. And I was there for that. And Steve Jobs was there. He was there at all the openings of these uh, first, first stores. And it was my first time um, uh, having a, any kind of official long conversation with him. It was only about five minutes. 
but one thing I, I asked him, I said, are, are, are you having fun again? And he looked at me with a big smile on his face. And he said, you know what? I really am. I'm really excited about the future. And it was one of those, I don't want to say unguarded moments, because Jobs was always very, very guarded. But it was one of those moments when it felt like Jobs wasn't giving me the marketing line. You know, when, whenever I saw him on TV, it always felt like he was marketing. He was saying exactly what what the marketing department wanted him to say. But in that moment, he had this big smile on his face. Went, yeah, I'm really excited, really having fun with with Apple now, and really looking forward to the future. Went, oh, cool, fantastic! <laughs> you know, gr- great news. Um, and every time I saw him afterwards, I, I'm I'll give the audience a visual of me. I'm, I'm six foot three, bald, two hundred seventy pounds. I'm a big guy, right? I'm I'm pretty obvious in a in a crowd. So Jobs, while he may never have known my name, certainly recognized me by eye, and I would get a little little head nod from him, and I'd give him a little wave when I talk when I, when I saw him. And we talked for five ten seconds. Hey, Mister Jobs, how are you? Great speech, kind of thing. It wasn't anything personal. I would never say we were good friends or anything else like that. But I always got a really good sense from him, even with all that intensity of Steve Jobs, that he was trying to change the world, that that's literally what he was doing. He wasn't worried about stock price. He wasn't worried about market share. He wasn't worried about any of that kind of stuff. He literally, in his soul, wanted to change the world through this company, through these products. And he loved doing that. He loved us being surprised and amazed and and in wonderment of both him and his products. And I think that really filtered down to the rest of the company. I think one of the reasons why the company has become so successful is from that top down jobs drove it home to them every single day every single moment we want to change the world keep doing things to change the world don't do things just to make money don't do things just because that's good enough go further work harder and he drove them he drove them. I, as i said I, I know a lot of apple employees i know a lot of folks who have quit because the the stresses and the pressures of the job were just weren't worth it for them. But for the folks who stayed, whenever you talk to them privately, and they wouldn't talk to about the stuff publicly, but privately they were always very excited and, and very happy to be working with and for jobs. And for the most part, in a different way. Same with Tim Cook. I was going to ask: Do you think this exists in today's Apple? Do you think it's still the same, or do you think things have sort of really changed sort of since Steve Steve left, as it were? There was there was a lull for a while because the <clears throat> frontline employees, the, the, the engineers, the, 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 the coders, the developers, those kind of guys, ones who I knew mostly, um, weren't sure about Cook because they didn't know Cook. Remember, Cook was the operations manager, VP of operations for the company. So the engineers never really dealt with him. They didn't see him as their boss so to speak. So when Cook became, first of all, you remember Jobs was sick for a very, very long time. And it was obvious that he was sick. Even though Apple PR lied their asses off the entire time, uh, we knew that Jobs was sick. We didn't know he was deathly sick, but we knew he was very, very sick. And so the employees started saying, you know, what's going to happen when Jobs retired? Because that's what we thought was going to happen, was he was sick about sick with something that was going to make him retire. And Cook was the logical uh, next CEO, maybe Phil Schiller, maybe somebody else, but Cook was was the head uh, in, in in the running, and they didn't know him. Uh, he's a very quiet, very soft spoken man, uh, wonderful Alabama accent, uh, not a yeller, not a a demonstrative guy. He's learned that a little bit in the last few years, but still nowhere near Jobs. Jobs' intensity wasn't just what you saw on TV, or wasn't just what you saw on stage at a Macworld Expo. 
you'd be standing next to him at an event and you could feel the guy vibrating. I mean, the guy just, just guy, he just gave off this intense energy, which sometimes was negative. If he was upset, I saw him upset a couple of times. I saw him screaming on the Macworld Expo show floor. Uh, two years after he became CEO, him and, um, the VP of hardware, I think John Levenstein, Lowenstein, can't remember his name. Uh, we're walking uh, across the show floor, and I was behind them trying to catch up to Jobs. And there was a booth there for a company called Apple Watch, and they were making Apple Watches, ironically enough. <laughs> but what they were doing, they were just regular Timex watches with Apple faces on them. They were Apple, had the Apple uh, color logo band, and they had a bunch of different bands, a bunch of different faces, but they were Apple-branded watches. And Steve Jobs hates that kind of Apple branding on T-shirts and, and hats. And he always, always hated that stuff. He went off on this poor girl. Now, what had happened was Emilio had given this company the contract to make these Apple Watches. So the AppleWatches.com girl had nothing to do with Apple. She was just the booth girl. She wasn't the boss of the company. She wasn't anybody important. She was just the person selling these watches to people. And Jobs got up in her face yelling at her, screaming at her, you take this booth down right effing now. Blah, 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 blah. And Lowenstein's trying to pull Jobs away, going, Steve, Steve, Steve. This girl's like 22, 23 years old. You know, she's probably a college student or a, a you know, beginning marketing person. She's crying. Tears are streaming down her face. And Jobs is still yelling at her. What? He just lost his stuff on her. So, yeah, his intensity sometimes can be really negative. <laughs> And Cook doesn't have that. Cook has that has that quiet competence, that calm that these guys weren't used to. It wasn't until, for a lot of them, until they saw their 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 stock price go up and up and up and up consistently over the next few years, and they saw the coming product line. Obviously, the the uh, the new newest versions of the iPhone, even newest versions of the Macintosh product line. The company is a mature company now, and it needs a mature calming person to i think steer it through whatever troubles it's going to have in the next five years i think tim cook has has done has done an amazing job it's hard to follow a legend ask any football quarterback ask the guy who you know who follows michael jordan or ask the guy who followed wayne gretzky it, it's hard to follow those guys uh, but i think tim cook has done an amazing job given what he has to work with which is the most one of the most valuable companies in the world and a stagnating market um, I think Apple's going to do just fine. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot about um, <clears throat> kind of what's happened under Tim's leadership, and I guess you could say the iPad, in large part, has kind of fallen under Tim's Tim's leadership. And you know, I look at the progress that's been made on the iPad in the last year, and I get I get really excited about it. But more yeah. more in terms of how that technology could be applied to the Mac, and I'm specifically thinking of like the A series chips that have gone into the iPads. Um, yes. I'm just kind of wondering where where do you stand on the iPad and its future because I, just, I I almost there's a little part of me that feels threatened by it almost on behalf of the Mac um, so I, I I wonder do you use one do you have a use for one I you know we've discussed on this show many times about how I feel about it I kind of feel like I would like to like it but I just don't have a use for it <laughs> you know what I was about to say the exact same thing that you were I think you hit the nail on the head right there that the the uh, the iPhone is never outside my arm's reach. I, I, I there's a, a new word called nomophobia, and it's the fear of your phone not being near you. I have nomophobia. <laughs> I absolutely have. I get the. I will turn the car around, go back home to get my phone 
because it's the, the most important device I own. And it's so scary to say that. The iPad, not so much. I bought the original iPad. I stood in line to get the original iPad. I bought the, the second version uh, a couple years later. I still have that second version. I have not found a way to, as much as I lust after new gadgets as a t- typical nerdy, geeky kind of guy, I have not found a use case for the iPad Pro. I, and if I do, it's an excuse. I think to myself, I'm going to, uh, I'm teaching a photography uh, workshop in uh, in Lisbon, Portugal, this coming March, and I'm thinking, well, I don't got to bring my laptop. I can I can buy an iPad Pro and do my demonstrations on the iPad Pro, but that's not enough of an excuse to spend here in Canada almost two thousand dollars on this air quotes toy. That's the problem to me. It's it still feels like a non necessary gadget that I can do without if I needed to. And have very easily on many, many occasions. My iPad uh, is now sitting in my next, not next to my bedside table. It's an alarm clock. That's what it gets used for 23 hours of the day. I might pick it up every now and then to, to read some stuff on, <clears throat> on Twitter or my, my uh, Pocket app. But for the most part, it doesn't do anything anymore. And I can't find a use case for it in my life. I'm not saying it's useless for everybody. But for me personally, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about... I think what you were saying is with the with A series chips, is the iPad going to become the Macintosh? Is it going to move into that space that so we'll all be forced, air quotes, to use an iPad? And would that be a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. I honestly don't know. I don't see the iPad as being um, as indispensable as the iPhone is, or even as the Mac is, as a laptop, or even as an iMac is. It's. I think it's caught in between. You see people all the time trying to force it into their workflow, and sometimes it's very successful. Um, the folks over at MacStories.net, um, Frederico Vatici, who, by the way, hates my guts. Um, Frederico is a, a 24-hour iPad guy. He loves the iPad. He's found a way to make it work for him, and good for him, but I can't. I, the stuff I do, the stuff I want to do, I can't find a, a use case for the iPad. Now, that being said, I do believe that inside the next five years, the chip in the iPad will be the same chip in our laptops, if yeah. not our iMacs. I, I think that's a given yeah. that at very least our MacBooks, Mac Airs, MacBook Airs will be running on that chip because Apple has Apple signals things. you got to pay attention, but Apple tells you what it's going to do in the future if you're smart enough and wise enough to read their tea leaves. And I think that's pretty obvious that that's where the MacBook, the laptop line, the old PowerBook line is going, is with that with that A, A chip. Yeah. Do you think um, this will filter all the way through to sort of the, the Pro machines as well, you know, all the way down the line? That's where I'm not smart enough to figure this out. <laughs> uh, I don't know if the A chip will in its present iteration or even future iterations, be powerful enough to do what a iMac needs to do from a point of view of screen size, from a point of view of computational power. Um, the idea that uh, the Mac Pro, the mythical Mac Pro that's coming out sometime in 2019, um, will that, that will have just immense amount of power to do Final Cut Pro, to do uh, logic editing, to do all that kind of heavy iron type stuff. The vast majority of people don't need that, though. I think it's certainly possible that everything in the lineup from Apple 
will be running on that chip except for the Mac Pro. I think maybe Apple will keep the Mac Pro as its heavy iron, as its big, bad, beautiful machine that we all aspire to but don't actually need (laughs) and keep it in the lineup. Because for the most part, the vast majority of Apple's customers nowadays, it wasn't always true in, in, in the, the past, but nowadays the vast majority of Apple's customers, they do email, they do web browsing, they yep. get on Facebook. That's it. This, they the, don't need. Go ahead. This is why the, um, the iPad is the machine for a lot of people, like it outside is, yep. of our sort of, you know, technically focused kind of areas. You know, like I see my, my, Mum uses an iPad and gets a lot out of that. Uh, my wife, her primary machine is her iPad. Yep. And we have a, a, a family Mac that is then used for sort of other purposes that's like for, for her and my boys. Um, but her her daily machine is her iPad. Uh, so I'm really surprised that Apple doesn't pitch that more. Because as we said earlier, it feels like the iPad is looking for a use case. It's a solution in search of a problem. And I think for the vast majority of people, the iPad, even the non-pro version, is a wonderful machine for that sort of casual computer user, your wife, my wife, my son, who just wants to play a game or just wants to email or whatever it might be. Apple doesn't seem to be doing a very good job of letting that average person know, if you need a computer, this is a computer. This isn't a toy. This isn't... Uh, a gadget. This is a computer. One of the problems I think Apple has, for whatever reason, they've never made the iPad a multi-user device. In other words, if you have an iPad, it's your iPad. And you can't set it up. Your wife can't set it up the way she wants it with her icons and her places. Whereas on the Mac, we can always log in, log out with different users, and different people can use our Macintoshes fully secure. I have no problem with my wife using my, my Macintosh because she logs in as her own user. Or my son can log in as his own user, and he's got his set up the way he wants it to. You can't do that with the iPad. And I think if that were the case, if you could do that, maybe Apple would be able to convince more people to buy them. I don't know. But right now, there's no doubt that there is, as, as someone smarter than me said, there is no tablet market anymore. There's the iPad market. That's it. So Apple has this whole concept to themselves. And I think they're really wasting this monopoly they have on the mindshare of the average consumer by not doing more. Do you guys believe that there should be an iPad OS as opposed to iOS? I've heard that from a lot of people. I don't know if that's true, but yeah, I believe it's that. certainly a possibility. Um, I don't know if Apple has the development needs, wants, desires to, to, to fork iOS into those two separate um, uh, uh, tracks, but they wouldn't have any problem. They wouldn't have the problem of Android and not being able to update because updates happen fairly automatically for the average user. I'm just surprised that, that Apple doesn't seem to be working hard enough to make the iPad that next-level computing device. It, it feels like it's in their reach. Yeah, it absolutely does. I agree. One thing that concerns me, though, is that while personally I would quite like to see an iPad OS. I then look at my dad, I look at my mum, I look at my granddad, my grandma. They all love the iPad just the way it is, and I worry that if we do too much, we're going to be taking away the very thing that they love, because I think what they love is they tap email, the whole screen is email. There's no multiple windows floating around. Um, 
then you get rid of that and you go to the internet and it's just the internet and then you get rid of that and you go to Facebook and it's just Facebook and yeah. that that's exactly what they need. So I, yeah, it's almost, I wonder if it's a case of being careful what you wish for um, in, in, in a lot of ways with that. I think we could get a lot out yeah, of it, I, I, I but maybe others couldn't. I wouldn't want to see. I wouldn't want to see Apple take the Mac OS and put it on the iPad. I, I think the behind-the-scenes stuff, because of the larger screen, because of the power of that screen and that chip in that iPad, they could do more behind the scenes. I agree with you. I, I don't want it to be multi-windows and a file system that that we have to explain to people. Oh no, put it on your desktop. No, that's a folder. I don't want that either. Uh, us us nerds can figure that stuff out on our on our own. But I'd like to have that power behind the scenes so that when someone, when your when 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 your when your wife or or your grandfather use the iPad, it's an iPad. But when you and I log in, it becomes a version of the Mac OS, if you understand what I'm saying, mm. where I can drag audio files and edit them very easily on this nice big screen, which right now I know I can do it. I, it's just too much hassle. I can't be bothered. Yeah. You know, I, if I don't record things on my iPad and then edit them, if I record something, I'll do it on my phone, then air, airdrop it to my Mac where I've got this big screen, this powerful software to do those kinds of things. So, I, I, yeah, I'd like to see it be continue to be as simplified as it is, but also to be able to take advantage of the power behind the scenes when it comes to multiple users and allowing those uh, more advanced users access to features that the the simplified users um, don't need or don't want to see. Do you think Marzipan's going to play a role in maybe pushing the iPad forward? Apple does very few things without a reason. They 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 they're not Google. They don't do moonshots. They don't do <laughs> speculation on this kind of stuff. Hey, let's throw this to the wall and see what sticks. Apple has had several technologies in the past that have gone by the wayside for whatever reason. But for the most part, if they say this is something we're going to do, look beyond that immediate announcement. Like I said before, Apple signals what they're going to do. So I think I think Apple is working very hard at Marzipan to make it be what they need it to be, which is very simple to use, uh, uncomplicated, not only for the user but also for for the developer. I, I definitely think Marzipan has a has a big use case coming up in the next two to three years. Maybe not next WWDC, but the one after that or the one after that. Yeah, I, I mean, I was thinking a little bit more on the. On the subject of the Mac Pro, actually, and what we might see this this year, I guess uh, I, I don't know if you have any sort of um, any ideas what you think that Mac Pro might be looking like. I love the idea of the big iron. I've always lost it after the big iron. I, I when I was a consultant in 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 the early days of doing the, the podcast, I needed it. I needed the the most powerful machine I could get to do all the things I needed to do. I don't need it anymore. I lost after it though. I so want whatever the <laughs> whatever the Mac Pro is going to be, I want it. You know, <laughs> it's yeah. at the level I'm at. I think one of the most interesting things about the Mac Pro is everyone attach themselves to this idea, this comment Apple made that the Mac Pro is going to be modular. Apple said that in their press release. This is going to be a modular computer. Yeah. And everyone, it was like the five blind men touching the elephant. Everyone had a different idea of what modular meant. A lot of people seem to think that it's going to be you open this thing up and you'll you know pull out a video card and stick a new one in and and the simplicity of just swapping bits and pieces out like some previous machines have been. I don't think that's going to be the case at all. 
I don't think I think we're going to see just an updated version of the of the the old now embarrassing Mac Pro. It's not going to be user accessible to the degree that some people think. I don't think you're going to be able to swap out all these components the way a lot of people think you're going to be able to do. Whatever Apple's definition of modular, and they won't tell you what that is, I've asked. <laughs> they just basically say, wait, you know, you'll find out. Thanks, Apple. You're very helpful. That's the biggest downside of Apple for those folks who who, who don't deal with the company is the, the their secrecy, which is understandable and very joyful at times, a lot of fun to be surprised, could be a giant pain in the ass if you're a media guy. They're just a hateful that way. They're just an awful, awful <laughs> company when it comes to PR. My, my Microsoft PR person calls me once a week. Hey, Sean, how you doing? I haven't heard from my Apple PR person in five years. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> they, just, they don't care. They don't care what the media thinks. Yeah. But I think the Mac Pro is going to be just an amazing machine, but it's now so old, it's going to have to blow away everything in order to get back those customers. All those guys three years ago, four years ago, who needed a new machine, needed power. I've got a couple of friends who are uh, Final Cut editors in, in Hollywood. I know one guy at the University of Calgary who is this amazing genius brain guy who runs Mac Pros in server sequences and does you know, gigaflops of what I don't even understand what the guy does. It just does amazing amounts of computer power. Those guys have moved on. They've moved on to Premiere. He's moved on to Windows servers or Unix yeah. servers. And people say, well, Apple's never going to get those customers back. Well, they actually, they are. Those guys flip machines back and forth, operating systems back and forth, whenever they need more power. Whatever gives them the most power, they will move to. It's very much like professional Canon and Nikon guys. I'm also a, a professional photographer, and I see this all the time. The Nikon guys will switch to Canon in a heartbeat, and the Canon guys will switch to Nikon in a heartbeat if that other company makes a better machine. They just have to make it. They, the, 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 the Mac Pro has to be so good it makes those guys switch from their present Unix servers and, and Windows machines and that kind of stuff. I think it will be. I think Apple's got a lot of work to do uh, from the point of view of confidence and trust. Apple told us the Mac Pro was going to be this, and then they sort of just left it languish. And those guys who trusted Apple sort of felt left out in the cold. So Apple's going to have to gain that trust back. And the best way to gain that trust is by having a machine that will just blow their socks off. We'll do Final Cut Pro stuff in, in seconds as opposed to minutes. We'll do Logic Audio faster than anything else has, has ever been done. So I think they can get those customers back. And the price point's not going to matter. We're all going to be blown away. The Mac Pro is going to cost $4,000 from the base model. That's just my prediction. And it's going to go up from there. And we're all going to go, that's too expensive. And meanwhile, my server friend in University of Calgary is going, really? I'll have 10. Yeah. You know? Because <laughs> to those guys, money doesn't matter. Money, time is money for them, literally. If they can do things faster, they can make more money. If he can do his science experiments faster, he can get on to the next science experiment. So those guys don't care about the money. We're going to all be aghast at it, but those guys won't. It's going to be an amazing machine, but we've got to keep it in, in perspective. It's a very, very minor part of Apple's product line. It is maybe 1% of the computer power that they, they'll sell in 2019. If that, the margins of it, they'll make a couple thousand bucks off each one of them. Is that enough to sustain the development of the Mac Pro going forward? I don't know. Will Apple continue 
with the Mac Pro. I think they will. I think that we'll see generations. It won't be every year, but every two, three years, yeah. if not longer than that, we'll see new Mac Pros because Apple wants that aspirational computer. They want that one machine that we can all lust after, and it's beautiful, and it does amazing things, and look how fast I can get email. <laughs> <laughs> but the flagship's important, right? That's That's the thing. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's right. It's whether it's the flagship of the iPhone line or the flagship of the the Mac line. Uh, that idea of that is very important to a certain segment of the computer popular computer using population. To my wife, she doesn't care. You know, to to a lot of folks, they don't care. But there's a certain segment of us that go, "Wow, that is just oh, I oh, oh. you know, we drool and lust over." Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's always the machine that I, I look up to. I'll, I'll never own one. I've got no need for it, even as a as a developer. Like, that's right. Yeah, you know, a, a MacBook Pro is probably fine for me. And <laughs> that's, you know, but yeah, yeah it's, it's still the, nice the to have that. Mac there. Mini is probably fine for me. Yeah, me too. I mean, I I look at it and go, oh, I could run Lightroom on that ten times faster. No, you couldn't. You know, you you there's a point where, and this is the perfect point of computer use, where your computer is faster than you are. You, know, you can't do things as fast as your your computer can. Where I I will do an edit on um, my uh, Lightroom document and I don't see the wheel spinning anymore. It happens instantly. Great, that's fantastic. Any faster than that doesn't matter. Any faster than instantly doesn't matter. It's it's a completely moot moot point. And I've reached that point. I've got a, a an iMac Pro um, that is probably going to last me until it blows up because it's the fastest thing I've ever owned and ever need to own. Uh, but yeah, if someone offered me a Mac Pro, I'd, I'd take it in a heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably a good place to leave it, I think, isn't it? Yeah, I think that brings us to a close. Wow. Did you want to uh, tell our wonderful listeners where they can find you, Sean? You can always find me. I've uh, been around for a long time at yourmaclifeshow.com. We do... If you, I always tell folks, if you enjoyed the tone of this conversation, you guys have been great. Thank you very much for inviting me. But this is the kind of conversational stuff I do on Your Mac Life. I'm not a heavy-duty, geeky, nerdy kind of guy. You guys who are doing the iOS stuff, the development is – I went to a WWDC and sat with a bunch of you guys, and my brain hurts <laughs> because I have no clue what you guys are talking about. I pretended that I did, and I bought you all beer, but I don't have a clue what you're talking about. <laughs> That's not what we do. And I, I like the idea that we're different from many other uh, podcasts. It's very light, very conversational. My wife, my Australian wife, uh, joins me on the show, and she's very cute and bubbly and funny. We try to, as I said from the top, the most important thing about our show is that we're entertaining, and we have a different viewpoint. We have a, 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 a host who will say what he thinks, uh, bar none, which is why he gets himself in trouble <laughs> so often. I, w I will tell you, I, I have such a big mouth. I actually, this is my favorite Apple story, I actually got Apple shut down. I actually had one infinite loop shut down. You what? While security interviewed everybody on the corporate level because I have such a big mouth. <laughs> this has happened this happened about seven years, eight years ago. I one of my air quotes informants uh sent me an email saying Apple's going to make this announcement of this event and it was one of the uh September September events. And here's the invitation. They sent me the PDF of the invitation. And he did it five minutes before the show was going to start. So without 
any, and this was someone I trusted. This is someone I knew. He had told me stuff behind the scenes. It was the first time he'd ever sent me actual physical documentation of what he was talking about. But he was a trusted informant. I, 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 I tried not to abuse his trust, but I did this time. And instantly on the show, I said, Apple is going to make the announcement. It's going to be at this location on this date at this time. And I was so proud of myself because we're not a scoop show. We don't, we don't deal in that that area, rumors and scoops and that kind of stuff. So I've, I've, I've never really been involved in that aspect of, of it. I was so proud of myself. And about an hour later, I got an email from one of the interns at uh, corporate marketing saying, our whole floor has been shut down. Security is keeping us in the building until they find out who freaking told you that. <laughs> <laughs> Steve Jobs apparently was running around looking to fire somebody. <laughs> and he was, he was starting with the interns. He fired two interns on the spot. They came back the next day. But he fired two interns on the spot. <laughs> and so the whole floor of the building, at one infinite loop, was shut down while security interviewed every single person. Wow. About this leak and where did this come from and who did it. And, oh, it was scary. It was so, so scary. <laughs> So yeah, that's the kind of big mouth I have. <laughs> <laughs> so the show's at uh, yourmaclifeshow.com. We also do a photography segment on each show. It's something I've been really interested in. One of the great things about the Macintosh is that I've always loved this idea that even if you're not a computer guy, you can still use it to do those other things that you want. And photography is a great example of that. You can be a great photographer, but if you can't edit your photos then your photography is wasted. If you can't share your photos, your photography is wasted. And with the iPhone and with the Mac, a professional photographer without any knowledge of computers per se can do amazing things with Lightroom and Photoshop and Final Cut and all the other tools that we have on the Macintosh in very, very easy, simple ways. So our segment on the show is called Starting Point Photography. The website is startingpointphotography.com. And we just talk in general about the cool stuff you can do with your photography, uh, mostly focused on beginners, on the tips and tricks of how to make your iPhone photographs better, um, the ideas, the concepts of photography in general, not so much specific cameras per se, because uh, every camera nowadays can take a good photo if you know how to use it. Our goal is to, is to teach you how to use it. And as I mentioned earlier, we're going to uh, Portugal, Lisbon, Portugal, in March for a week of photography training. Uh, taking a bunch, it's the thing, this thing I call photo tourism. And the idea is you go on the vacation, you're going to go anyway. And Lisbon is a spectacularly beautiful city with wonderful history and amazing food and, and views and light. And it's a great place to be. But you go on that vacation with a professional photographer who in the morning teaches you a class and then you go out with that photographer to put into practice the stuff you just learned in the morning. And then in the afternoon, you go off to be a tourist and you can go off shopping and, and eating and, and then the next day you do the same thing over and over again for a week. So we're doing that in uh, Lisbon, Portugal this coming March. If you want more information about that, you can go to startingpointphotography.com. Wow. Sean, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. We, um, yeah, we massively appreciate it. So thanks very much. I appreciate you guys inviting me. Like I said, no one else ever does. So you guys don't know me. That's why you invited me. <laughs> <laughs> Once you get to know me, you'll go, yeah, we're not talking to him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, it's been great, Sean. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. 
Okay, we'll call that a wrap. If you've enjoyed today's show, it'd be great if you could leave us a review on iTunes or if you could leave us a recommendation in Overcast by hitting that star button, that will help us reach even more like-minded people. Um, Also, we have our Slack channel. We'd love to invite you to join. Our hope is it can be a really great place for fellow developers to come and hang out. If you'd like to join, uh, just leave us a message on Twitter at WFR Podcast and we'll get you signed up. So, Dave, before we run off, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at DWRoboHeads. That's RoboHeads spelled with a Z. And you can find my apps at RoboHeads.com. Again, that's RoboHeads spelled with a Z. How about you, Dave? You can follow me online at DaveNot.co.uk or on Twitter, I'm at underscore DaveNot. 